This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Father in heaven, we are distinctly aware that apart from you, we, we can do nothing. And despite my greatest effort, I cannot change a heart, I can't preach well enough or move us, but you can. And so, God, we ask you that in your love and your kindness and your mercy, you, you would stir us up, that you would awaken us, that we ourselves would encounter Christ today. Help us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Are you guys able to hear the ringing that I hear? No? Okay. All right. <laughs> if you don't know it yet, people are kind of crazy. You might be one of those crazy people, and, and people do crazy stuff. And if you think about it, we, we all fall in that category at some point or another. Some people jump off the sides of cliffs with some sort of fabric between their arms and fly and expect to make it to the bottom alive. I, I think that's crazy, but they do it. Uh, people jump out of airplanes. Uh, I, I once saw a man on a morning television who had sold all of his possessions, every one of them, and collected all the money together to go to Vegas and put it on black or red for a 50-50 shot to double it entire life's possessions. I think that's crazy. He happened to win, as best I understand, so it turned out well for him. It was still crazy. Some people do things like ask a woman to marry you in front of a, on a jumbotron in front of 30,000 uh, str complete strangers, not knowing what's going to happen. I've seen one time when that happened and the girl didn't say yes on the jumbotron and they immediately cut to something else, thankfully. Here's the thing. No matter what it is that someone does that's crazy, in general, there is one motive that everybody gets a pass on. What do you think it is? If it's done in love. If you, if you did something crazy, but it's because you're in love, well, everybody goes, oh, oh, all right. <laughs> I mean, what other occasion would you put yourself exposed on a jumbotron in front of 30,000 strangers? But in love, everybody gets it. It's, that's the thing that changes the action and makes it acceptable to the rest of us who normally wouldn't do that. Well, it's, it's not unlike that in the Christian faith. We are told to love God. And there's far more depth to that kind of love than just an emotional response that drives us to do something silly. But if you live your life in light of the resurrection, meaning that if, if your life ultimately only makes sense if Jesus has been raised from the dead, that will be crazy to most people. But in the kingdom of God, well, that's the one motivator, that's the one uh, qualifier that makes it logical. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, 
And so love to God is a whole life response that may look crazy. Well, in our text this morning, we have uh, some contrasting responses to Jesus. Appearances can be deceiving. You know the phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover. A person's response to Christ can only be evaluated by the heart. Between two movements in, in the passion narrative in the Gospel of Mark, we have here Jesus moving towards that fateful hour when he will be crucified. But before we get there, if you're walking along in the Gospel of Mark, before you get there, you are brought to this, this home at this, at this meal that's being thrown where this extravagant display of devotion and love that's frankly crazy is set in contrast with a more indifferent, even callous, cold response to Jesus. What you and I are supposed to do as we read these encounters, we're tempted, anytime in the Bible, anytime we're reading the Bible, we're tempted to go right into a story and see ourselves being the good guy or the good girl in the passage immediately, and then, you know, sort of like shaming those that are bad in the passage. But what we're supposed to do first is, is just see everything that's there and then let Jesus make the points for us and draw us in. We might be the good guy. We might be the bad girl. But we don't know until we've encountered Christ as he encounters those in the text. So I have two aims primarily for us this morning. My hope is first that each of us would encounter Christ. And in the contrasting responses to him, you and I, by the Spirit, would have our hearts exposed and we would examine ourselves. If you find that you are not in Christ, that you would respond to him in repentance and faith. And if you, respond, if you find that you are in Christ, well, the woman that's in this passage is an example for us that we are called into to follow her pattern. So, so that's... That's our aim. What makes someone an insider to Christ is the genuine heart devotion that is willing to risk and spend in love for him. A genuine heart devotion that's willing to spend and to sacrifice or give yourself risk for him. Or another way to say this is that discipleship is love for Jesus. So, in your outline, you have uh, a couple of points. And the first one is that a woman gave a costly gift. A woman gave a costly gift. Look with me. I'm going to read the whole uh, section here, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll zero in beginning at verse 3. So, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. And kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. 
But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. A woman gave a costly gift. Verse 3 tells us that this, this setting is two days before the Passover. It's That's indicative for us that Jesus is near the cross. He's near his death. Remarkably, he's at a feast, reclining at table, at peace in the world. Now, if you compare this with the other narrative that we find in John 12, you you might just jot that down if you take notes, because that's one you could read at home, and I hope to give you some tools to be able to not only read those passages together, but to understand the Gospels a little bit better as we go. Because there's a, few focus, uh, uh, there's a few ways that the, each author focuses that draw our attention in a particular direction. But as you compare them and you, you uh, get more details of the scene, you understand that um, John corrects it, that it, the, the actual event of the meal was six days prior. But what, which, what, tells us, what, what that tells us then is that Mark wants us to focus or realize that this event is being compared to what happens two days prior, which is when what we read in verses 1 and 2 and 10 through 11. And then we'll come back to those verses uh, in our second point. So in, here we are, just a couple days before the Passover, near Jesus' cross, and they're in Bethany. This is where Lazarus had been healed. Now, in our, in our passage here in Mark 14, you'll notice that we're not told anything about Lazarus, and the woman is unnamed. She's an unnamed woman. We get those details from John's narrative. So notice what details we are given. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask. Jesus is reclining at a table, which tells us that this is not an ordinary supper where he might be uh, sitting at the table, but he's reclined so that this is a feast. There are a lot of people present. So we know from John's narrative that, that Lazarus was there. We know that his sisters were there, Mary and Martha. Now we're reading of a man named Simon who, who is, is the host of this event. Some people speculate that Simon is, a, is, the, uh, is the name of... of uh, Lazarus in some other context, or maybe it was their father. No one really knows. Uh, it seems to me that Simon is another man in the town who was friends in the same circle. Now think about this. Already you have Jesus, you have Mary, you have Martha, you have Lazarus and Simon. That's five. But you have Jesus there with his 12 disciples. So before we've even added up anybody else, we know there's 17 people present. So there has to be other people there helping to get things together and move things along. And if this is a circle of friends, you have a special guest like Jesus, you've invited all of your closest friends. So it's, it's, it's a pretty large meal of some sort. 
Jesus is there. We're also told that she had a sealed alabaster flask. So this is a container. It's not like what we have with our water, bo- water bottles and so forth where we can just uh, unscrew the lid and use some of it and, and then put it back. But this is a closed container. It's a, it's a flask that can't be opened and closed. But once it's sealed and its, and its contents are sealed up in it, the only way to use it is to break the whole thing. And so once you break it, you, you have to use it all. And then we're told that it's very costly. It's made of pure nard. It's probably an extract from, uh, imported from India. It's very rare. And because it's pure, we're told, we're told it's pure. So because of that, we know that it was hard to get and it was of, of a very fine quality. So what we're being told is that this woman has something that is of great value. It's, it's of uh, essentially heirloom value. That's what she has. At what point, though, would this item get so valuable? Commentators speculate this to be a family, family heirloom that probably would have been passed down to her, possibly, actually, passed down to her um, as, as something that she would have used when she got married, as an endowment of some kind. Of course, we have no way, uh, no way of knowing if it was bought as an investment. Possibly someone in her family at some point had the opportunity to buy it and knew that it would be of great value at some point later. Maybe it was a debt that was paid and it was the only thing someone had. Maybe it was something like uh, what, what maybe your Auntie Grace uh, picked up at a yard sale and didn't even know what it was worth, but comes to find out it's of great value. No matter what, this is something that her family would have treasured. This is like a G.I. Joe figurine that should be played with, but it's worth too much to get it out of the box. You know, or, or like there are some cars that are incredible and we all think, wow, I wish I could drive that. But the owner doesn't even want to get it out of the garage because a pebble might, you know, chip the paint or something. Baseball bats, you know, they're not worth all that much unless you have something like a signature of Ted Williams on it in which case you, you don't take that to the batting cages, right? At some point, some things become so valuable that they're unusable now. To use them is, is foolish. Imagine having a bottle of perfume like that. On what occasion would you use that? What occasion is high enough to spray that and use it up? But notice what she does with it. There is Jesus reclining at the table. And it says in verse 3 again, The woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now here's the scene. You have the table laid out in front of you. And being reclined, he's not reclined away from the table, but he's reclined towards the table. Possibly he's, he's up on his you know, his elbows leaned in towards the table so he has access to the food. And so his head is facing this way, probably a long table, and his feet are out from out behind him. So I, I mentioned a minute ago that I'll try to give you some tools. And so think about this. If, if you read John, John doesn't mention that she poured it on his head, but he mentions that he, she poured it on his, uh, on his feet. And then she uses her hair and wipes his feet with her hair. Now, pop quiz, I don't expect anybody to know this, but if you do, 
I, I, would be, I would be pleasantly surprised. Why do you think John focuses in this scene on the feet? I know we're not in John, but I just told you what he does. Why do you suppose he focuses there and Mark focuses on the head? You can answer out loud on this one. What do people say sometimes? If you read that along or maybe somebody you know, they would, they would say about that. Anybody? I hear some thoughts, but I... One thing people say will say, well, they contradict each other. Right? Some people would make that accusation. What's that? Didn't see it? Okay, that the, that the narrators didn't actually see the event? Okay, they're reporting the way that they saw it, and one saw this part. And the, yep. Yeah, that's certainly that's certainly a possibility. Here's the thing: in John's gospel, the very next passage it hap- it occurs in John chapter twelve, John chapter thirteen. Anybody know what's there? Nope, not yet. It's when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. So right before he does that, John skips this part and goes to the feet of how Jesus' feet were washed with the hair of this woman. So that helps you when you're coming here because Mark doesn't tell you that part. So what, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to pick these things up and see, okay, Mark leaves that out, but he tells us this. Why is Mark telling me this? Why is Mark saying this? And there's a clue in the text that we'll come to in just a minute. So there's the scene. There's Jesus. He's leaned forward. She comes up uh, to him, apparently probably standing over him, and breaks the flask and pours it on his head. And so I'm saying from John, we know that she also went on down, all the way down his body, and poured down, uh, down to his feet as well. You see in verse 8, actually, that Jesus goes ahead and says, what she has done, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So that, that little link right there helps you see the link between Mark and John, the head all the way to the feet. She broke it and poured it on his head. And so breaking it meant using it completely. Like Humpty Dumpty, it couldn't be put back together again. She intended to exhaust its contents. Now, this was a rather disruptive thing to do. Again, remember the scene. We've got at least 17 people there. And you know, at a, at a, at a big meal like this with 17 to 20 people plus, what's happening? A lot of side conversations. Everybody's having a good time. Over here on this end, maybe, maybe Peter and John are debating something. Uh, over on this end, maybe the sons of Zebedee are causing problems because apparently that's what they do and they're just stirring things up and maybe they're rowdy. Martha is running around and serving, John tells us. She's prep, uh, prep, prepping everything. Lazarus is probably still just telling the story of how he was resurrected from the dead. Everybody's carrying on and happy Jesus is here. And in the midst of all of that, this woman comes and she breaks it and And in another place, it tells us that the aroma filled the entire room. What do you think that that did in that moment? Everybody probably got quiet. Everybody stopped all of their side conversations and turned. 
You know, maybe your back's turned and you're, you're the one that's being loud and everybody starts to get quiet and you keep telling your story and everybody's like, shh. And they're doing that and everybody's like, look, 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 look. And everybody's turning. And in this moment, their hearts are convicted, are stirred, are conflicted for all kinds of reasons. What happens when, 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 this, when something like this occurs in our lives. Someone gets an opportunity to do something significant for the Lord and they do it. What are the responses that you have sometimes? Jealousy, happiness, excitement, shock, confusion. Well, that's exactly what happened here. And it says, and this is the second point that you have on your outline, some were indignant. Some were indignant. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Can you imagine that? I'm going to come back to her and maybe what she's thinking and how she's processing all of this, because I think that we're supposed to respond, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are supposed to see what she does and respond to that. So we need to think about her. But in this, content, in this verse, first, there is a repulsion to what she's doing. This word indignant is, it means moral, uh, moral repulsion. No one who felt that way didn't feel morally superior. Think about that. What a waste, you foolish girl. Why are you doing that? Can't you see? This is the word that's used to describe the priests and the scribes, their anger when the crowds praise Jesus with Hosanna. And remember what they thought? They thought that that was blasphemous. So in, in loyalty to God and repulsion towards the crowd's response to Jesus, they were indignant in that moment. It's the same word that you used to describe the disciples' anger at James and John's request to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. You know, remember that scene? They're walking behind and they're asking, and they're like, whoa, who do you think you are? You can't ask that. It's even the word used to describe Jesus' attitude when the disciples rebuke the children from coming to him. It says there that Jesus was indignant at the disciples pushing the children away. That's the word that you, they were indignant towards her waste. Some of those who were present felt moral outrage against her and maybe, maybe even against Jesus for receiving it. You ever found yourself doing that? Saying, God, I don't understand why you would do this. I don't understand why you wouldn't do this. I'm outraged at you, God. Well, in a human sense, this is understandable. It's understandably so because, again, in verse 3, we're told that it's very costly. And then here in verse 4, it's explained more in this phrase, more than 300 denarii. Now, a denarii, one denarii was essentially a day laborer's, a common laborer's salary. So 300 denarii, Salary is the wrong word, but day's wage. Uh, 300 denarii is about a year's worth of money. So what do you make a year? Whatever that is. Just put that into perspective. A year's total income 
all in one flask. And when you use it, it's all used. So let's just round our numbers and let's just say 50,000. Can you imagine $50,000 in one flask? What do you do with that? I can't think of something that I'm going to spend that 50000 on in one shot. Now, maybe there are a few things. Maybe we'd say college education. Maybe, maybe a, a car for your family. Maybe a house. You're going to buy a house. 50000 won't pay for college or buy a house these days. But, <laughs> but you'd say, well, that's worth it. That I'm getting in this exchange, this cost-benefit scenario, what I have in my hand is worth that, so I'm going to trade that. But is, what would you give with, for nothing re, in return? What scenario would you give 50000 and get nothing back? We understand that. That seems crazy. Now, what if she says, because, because of love? She might get a pass. John singles out Judas in, in his account of this, but Mark indicates that he wasn't the only one. So in John chapter 12, it tells us that Judas is the lead speaker here. But notice what Mark says. Mark, verse 4, there were some. So it wasn't just Judas in the room. Now, Judas is the one that takes it to the next level, as we'll see. But everybody there was responding to this. And their excuse, their excuse is that the poor could have been helped. Now, this is not false. The poor could have been helped. That's a true statement. But it's a pretense. It's a pretense for what's really in their hearts as they see her do this. They didn't actually care about the poor. What they cared about was the money, the value. Now, Jesus, because he's Jesus, he knows this. And he quotes Deuteronomy 15, 11. Notice what he says in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. He says, the poor you will always have with you. Which is not Jesus' way of saying, don't worry about the poor. But rather, you always have the opportunity to do them good. In other words... He's exposing their pretense. If you really cared about the poor, well, they're, they're here every day. <laughs> Yesterday, before we had this meal and this whole event happened, the poor were outside. You could have helped them if you wanted to. Tomorrow, as I go to my cross, well, the poor will still be here. You can still help them. So I, I hope to apply that a little further here in just a moment. This is a good reminder that Jesus did not say poverty is not a solvable problem, so don't worry about it. But he actually implies that genuine concern for the poor always has its outlet. You will always have poor among you. So while we may not ever solve poverty, we do always have the opportunity to do good to those who are poor. And he further implies that we, that we will take the opportunities to do them good if we want if that's in our hearts, the opportunity is there and we will do it. It's just that on this occasion, Jesus is the greater poor person. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to spend other people's money to help someone and how hard it is to spend your own? You know, if you're looking at someone in the eye and you have $5 in your pocket, it's like, 
But if we're talking about, say, um, taxes, well, we've all got real strong opinions on how that gets spent. When we're talking about our personal resources, it's a pretty touchy subject. We don't want people to know how much we make, what we spend it on, or how we plan to use it in the future. But when we're talking about other people's money or a public collection, we have very strong opinions. And here is this woman with her possession that she chooses to lavish on Jesus. And he calls it beautiful. He calls it beautiful. Do you have a category in your mind for lavishness on Jesus? Lavishness on Jesus. Have you considered the spiritual beauty of imprudent spending of yourself for Christ? It's a beautiful thing, Jesus says. Now, if you take out the element of love towards God in Christ, you you remove that from the scenario, it's selfishness, it's wastefulness, it's it's using up the resources that others have poured into you and, and many other things. But when you insert love to Jesus into the occasion, it is beautiful. Jesus called it beautiful. He says in verse 6, she has done a beautiful thing to me. So what makes it beautiful? Well, there are several things that I think that you can see in this text. One is that there is great personal cost involved. That's part of what makes it beautiful. There's also a disregard for what others think of it. What was she thinking when she's back in the back room or wherever it was that this was stored at, and she's got it in her hands, and she's looking out there, and she sees the the whole uh, room kind of mingling and talking and laughing. And as she's doing that, and she's looking at it and considering what she's about to do, she had to consider what are people going to think. But she overcame that to show Jesus an extravagant public display of love. But possibly the most important uh, way that this is beautiful, a reason that it's beautiful, is the object of it. The object of it. Verse 8 says that she has done what she could. This is where Jesus is considering the personal cost that it was to her. Jesus recognizes that she had little at her disposal, but what she had was of tremendous personal value. In this, she is like the widow with her two mites in chapter 12 of Mark, offering what she had. It is beautiful as she offered what was available to her. Now, I know that some of you think this way. Some of you think that you have nothing much to offer. Part of that's your disposition. Part of it is maybe you've tried at times in various settings and various scenarios, and maybe you failed. Maybe you've been rejected, or maybe people in your life have told you you're never going to amount to anything. You're not going to do anything. You don't have anything of value. Just take a seat. But I want you to know that you have something. At bare minimum, you have your life. You have breath in your lungs. You have a mind. You have hands. And it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars, $50,000, or a dollar. You have something at your disposal, that the Lord has given to you. You aren't wealthy. You don't think you have much by way of talent. Maybe you're not good with words. But do you know that God does not ask you to do what he has not given to you to do? Okay, so you're not good with words. Okay, so maybe he hasn't called you to teach. That's not what he's calling you to do. If you're not a teacher, he does not say you have nothing unless you learn to teach. 
Everyone has something. What you are to offer to him is what you have, wherever you are. Whether you're a child, whether you're a teenager, a college student, a middle-aged family, family man, family woman, single person, uh, grandparent, or retiree, or anywhere down the line, where, at different phases in life, you're going to have different stuff. You're going to have different resources. You're going to have different talents. You're going to have different knowledge. And all along the way, God is calling you and giving you the opportunity to use that in, a, in, an, in acts of love and extravagance towards God. Others of us have so very much. I ask you, can it be said by our Lord that you have done what you could? If Jesus were evaluating your life and the way you spend yourself, would he say, she's done what she could? He's done what he could. Certainly, none of us would say yes in every scenario. But you know what God is saying. You know what God would say about you in general. Remember that to whom much is given, much is required. Do not waste another moment hesitating to be extravagant. Don't stifle love's pure display by ideas of rainy days and good stewardship. Religious platitudes are good for Pharisees and hypocrites, but not disciples. Not disciples. Now, all of us are guilty of being a hypocrite at some point or another, maybe today. Okay? But if you're a disciple of Christ, God doesn't allow us to just throw our hands up and stay there. He calls you out of that. Jesus sees the heart. And he is able to make even our smallest gestures significant and our recklessness beautiful. Now, we understand this. When a child shares her favorite stuffed animal that she sleeps with every night, we cherish the thought. You go, what? Me? I can't take that. I can't take that from you. Not because of the monetary value. It's not like you can't just go buy a Beanie Boo down at Walgreens for five bucks but because of the personal value that the child is extending to us. That's the kind of response that is appropriate to respond to Jesus with. She has done a beautiful thing to him from her heart. Jesus makes our smallest gestures to him of eternal significance. He takes a cup of cold water in his name and he turns it into riches unknown on the earth. Think about that. God is that powerful. He is that great. That's why it doesn't matter whether you have a lot or whether you have a little. If you are responding to Christ and you're giving yourself, well, he sees that heart. So give. Do it. He can make that cup of cold water become a waterfall to someone else. An old... uh, Scottish preacher and um, writer said this, um, thinking about this passage. He said, One sometimes would like to see more things done for him that the world would call utter folly and prodigal waste and absolutely useless. Jesus Christ has many strange things in his treasure house. Widow's mites, cups of water, Mary's broken vase. Here's the question. Has he anything of yours? In Jesus' treasure house, 
Has he anything on the shelf from you? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple, we should be able to say yes to that. And hopefully no one's content with whatever they would say yes to. If you can't say yes to that, and you are a genuine follower of Jesus, Mary, her example is calling to you today, saying, don't waste your life. Don't waste your opportunities. Don't squander your flasks, saving them for some rainy day out there. Jesus is the, the thing, the person, the now that the rainy day is for. Jesus is. Now, you still have to ask this question that the text doesn't really answer for us, except it hints at it. The question is, is where is Jesus now? How do we do this today? And there are lots of ways to answer that question. One of them in the text, Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you. So there's one avenue that he's pointing out. I won't always be here. You will have opportunities to do this kind of thing to other people. So as you begin to meditate on that, that opens it up. Jesus says that whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers. So any of Jesus's people that we lavish love towards, we're doing to Jesus. Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you have done what? Unto me. Jesus counts it for himself. Remember Paul when he's writing back to Philemon and he's sending back Philemon's escaped slave. And then he says, whatever wrong he's, he's done to you or whatever, uh, whatever he needs to repay, just put that on my account. As we give and serve the body of Christ, that's Jesus' account. And all that goes on his account, and he keeps track of it, and he keeps perfect records. There won't be one cup of cold water that's been offered in his name that Jesus doesn't know about, that Jesus doesn't respond to, that Jesus doesn't remember, and will one day reward in person. And you can, you can count on that. Has he anything of yours? What makes the difference between waste and beauty is neither personal nor monetary value or is, is not merely personal and monetary value, but the object of that, effect, that, that affection is poured out to. It is a, ultimately a beautiful thing because it was done to Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, first of all, we're, we're really glad you're here. The fact that you're here shows that you have some level of interest, some intrigue, something. Maybe you're asking God. Maybe today's the day that you walked in and you said, I'm going to give this one more shot. I've been there. I've done that. What Jesus is calling you to, what, what you should be wrestling with as you hear this, is, is you should be asking this question. It's the same question we should all be asking. But what would make her respond to Jesus in this way? There is something in Christ that she saw that she said, I am willing to spend my most valuable treasured possession that could never be replaced and give it away in a moment. Now she had lots of reasons. Her brother was dead. Jesus raised, raised him up. But she shows an extravagant love that challenges every person in this room, myself included. And probably puts all of us to shame. What is it in Jesus that draws that out of her? You're studying encounters with Jesus this summer. Well, she encountered Christ and this was her response. If you're not here yet, if you're, not here, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I would say to you that at the very least, you should look again at Christ. Because there is something of him 
that elicits this response. And I think anybody in here that is following Christ would tell you that they have seen it. That's why we're here today. And ultimately, the way we've seen it is we've seen it in Jesus' willingness to die on a shameful cross, being mocked and scorned when he didn't deserve that for anything. But he did it out of his own love for us. You talk about extravagance, extravagant giving. Well, we had sinned against God, just as you have, every one of us in here. And our sin deserves God's wrath. And Jesus agrees with that. The wages of sin is death. Jesus says, yes, that's right. So Jesus doesn't argue we need to change that penalty. What Jesus says, we need to pay that penalty. But what he does is he goes to the cross in the place of sinners so that he takes all that wrath, he takes that punishment, and he is banished to the experience of hell and raised from the dead so that he sits now alive, dispensing complete and total forgiveness to everyone that will come to him. And his death counts for your sin if you will repent from your sins and believe in him. That is where you see Jesus' ultimate worth, but it gets much better than that. And that's what the Christian walk is all about, is learning to follow Christ and see him more fully. If you're here today and that's you and you want to talk about that, I would be happy to speak with you. Chris is here today. Please don't leave without responding to Christ in this way. Okay. Mary challenges us with an example that we should follow. There's another example here, though, and that's one that we should leave and abandon. More briefly, I just want you to see the comparison that Mark lays out for us to help us uh, ask ourselves where we, where we fit. There's an example that we should leave in verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. And what you see here is you see that there are different motives behind all of our actions. And the first one that we see here is that there is a motive of power and influence. In verses 1 and 2, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people." While the city was preparing for the sacrifice to God, those who would be expected to lead in the worship of God were instead plotting to arrest and kill Jesus. Just two days before the most important religious festival in Judaism, these leaders of Israel were plotting a murder. In fact, it says that they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, a secret murder. And this verb here that's, that's translated as seeking describes them as actively looking for an opportunity. They were plotting, conversing, asking around. John eleven fifty seven 57 tells us, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, you already know that Jesus was a great threat to these leaders, but Mark gives us a little more insight into their motives here in verse 2 when he explains why all the secrecy. Notice what he says. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. This is what was so threatening to them about Jesus. The people loved him. And so this was a threat to their power, their influence. At the time that this woman was giving her everything to Jesus. There were those 
meanwhile in the city who were huddled up together and saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We've got to kill him. When Jesus entered the city, you recall, the people were shouting messianic chants and heralding him as the coming king. His kingship is a threat to the world's power and the world's systems. So while these leaders had already murdered him in their hearts, they had to be careful how they carried out their evil deed so they maintained their own power. But on the other side, or on the other hand, there is a willing partner that we read of in verses 10 and 11, and that shows us the other motive, the motive of money and mobility. The money of motive and mobility. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. His motives were more subtly stated in the passage with that phrase, they promised to give him money. But actually, he isn't mentioned by name until verse 11 here. But money as a motivator stands already in the background of Mark. Remember in chapter 12, Jesus warned his disciples to watch out for the scribes who, he says, quote, like receiving honor from people and devouring widows' property. When this woman broke the flask, someone in the group knew exactly what it was worth. They had already seen it on the shelf. They had already been calculating 300 denarii right there. wonder how I get my hands on that. And in fact, John names Judas directly as the one who said it. I've alluded to this already, but John 4, uh, 12, 4 says, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So here's what you see. All heart idols unite in competition with Jesus. That's why Jesus is a threat. And it doesn't matter whether you're in power or you're not in power, whether you have money or you don't have money. Whatever your idol is, Jesus is a threat to that. And so if you're outside of Christ, that is so threatening you have to resist and push against him or run away from him. If you're inside Christ, Jesus is still a threat to your idols because he loves you and he's going to come after them. So he's going to do things in your life to expose those idols and show them to you so that you will repent from them and have more of him. It's painful, but he does it in love. So look at how these two different motives unite against Jesus. The section ends with these words in verse 11. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This word sought in verse 11 is the same word in verse 1 for seeking. So Mark means for us to see that the scribes and Pharisees and Judas on this end were both seeking the same goal. And their motives, their heart idols united together to put Jesus to death. They had different motives. One wanted power and influence, maybe even reputation. The other one wanted money and security of having things. Idols are specific to every human heart, but the result is always the same, opposition to Jesus. A hindrance to love. Jesus stands in the way of the idols of our heart, and when he makes direct confrontation with our hearts, our idols are exposed. So I ask you this. I wonder if as you read this, your heart is exposed at all. If you're honest and you see what Mary did, do you think, yeah, I get it, but 
50 grand? I, I don't know. I don't know. You should be honest with yourself. Or maybe you see Judas, and you're like, Judas, I'm not Judas. But then when you read that he just wanted some money, you think, well, yeah, maybe my life is characterized by that sometimes. Maybe I'm using Jesus sometimes, hoping, for, hoping that he'll be sort of like my slot machine. Or maybe it's power and influence or a name and reputation like the scribes and Pharisees. Our heart is not idol-free. But when Jesus shows up, he exposes it, and then we're left with a response. What will our response be? Will it be to give those things up? Will it be to give ourselves to him? Or will it be to cling to them? And if we cling to them, then we will resist Jesus. We are challenged by this text to ask, who am I? Who am I in this text? And before you answer that for yourself, I would encourage you to ask God. Because our hearts lie to ourselves all the time. Ask God, who am I? The greater irony in the passage is this, and this is what I'll close with. And I I hope that this will motivate you. What idols promise, they never deliver. But God gives what what is promised freely in great measure with purity and no grief. Don't miss what Jesus does for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This woman received what she was not looking for that others were selling their souls to get. I pointed out earlier on, and I've been using her name, Mary, but remember, Mary's name is not in Mark 14. That comes from John 12. Mark leaves her name out for several reasons. But I think the biggest reason that's just screaming at us from the text is that she's unnamed here, unknown, doing an extravagant gift in a private home. She wasn't thinking about, will people know about this? Will people make a big deal of me? Will I get written down in the Bible? Will I have a book? Maybe, will my blog get visited as I tell the story? She's not thinking about that. She's just thinking, there's Jesus. There's Jesus. This is my shot to show him how much I love him. And so she did. And you know what she got in return? She got worldwide fame. Notice what Jesus said there. Truly, I say to you in verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. When I told my, my kids, asked me last night, what are, you gonna, what, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm preaching on the alabaster flask, the one with the alabaster flask. And my son, Alistair, he kind of shocked me. He just started walking me through that text. And I was like, how do you know that? <laughs> Which is pretty cool, right? But it dawned on me, too, as he was saying that, I thought, 14.9. Wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told in memory of her. My six-year-old son knows this story. She did it in a private setting at a home in Bethany 2,000 years ago with just a few people there. Yeah, it was a big party, but compared to the world, there was nobody there. And she didn't do it for name or recognition, but that's what she got. And you're going to meet her in heaven if you know Jesus. And we'll remember this story there. Isn't that incredible? 
what Judas was after, what the scribes were after, what the Pharisees were trying to get, and they killed Jesus to try to get with their hands, they didn't get it. This woman who didn't seek it, she got it. Because instead, she was pursuing Jesus. So here's what we have to do. We have to respond to Christ. First, we have to ask, who, who am I? Where am I in the text? What do I need to repent of if I, if I know him? How, how's it going? How's it going responding to Jesus and being extravagant with him? If you don't, if you don't know him, the main thing you need to do right now is to give him the most valuable thing you have, and that's you. And what you'll find is that you'll get something of much greater value. I'm going to close us in prayer. If you would, pray with me. And those who are um, leading us in song, if you would come. I'm going to pray, and then I'll turn it over to them. And I just challenge you to ask God, don't leave this room without asking God that question. Who am I in this text? How am I doing? Do I love him? Am I extravagant with my love? And whatever God shows you, whatever he tells you to do, you should do it. Take that step and do it. Father in heaven, we ask for your help now. God, we pray that Satan would not come and rob this word like birds of the air, the seeds that are planted along the, the road. But instead, God, we pray that right now the Spirit would convict and convince and, and motivate and move. God, we pray that seeds would be planted on good soil right now by your Spirit, that you would do this for your own glory, that you would glorify yourself among us. In Jesus' name, amen.